it sounds really beautiful to say that I want a world in which everyone belongs. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe everyone is made in the image of God. But when the rubber hits the road and I am confronted with people who would deny my humanity because of the color of my skin or because of how I worship or who I love, right? It becomes a much more disciplined practice. Welcome to Everything is Spiritual, a podcast from Soul Care Urban Retreat Center. We're talking with local folks, faith leaders, creatives, thinkers, and community advocates, getting personal about their faith and spirituality and how it shows up in their daily life and work. I'm Kelly Skinner, your host, and I'm sharing these heart-centered conversations to invite you to become more aware that everything is spiritual and to deeply connect with what is most true and alive in your own everyday life. Welcome back to the podcast, friends. I am joined today by Reverend Jennifer Bailey. She is an associate minister at Greater Bethel AME Church in Nashville. She's also the founder and executive director of an organization called Faith Matters, which is a womanist-led nonprofit, which is focused on personal and social transformation. And they have a beautiful mission, which is to heal the healers. They work with leaders, organizers, and activists in social change movements. And they do that through providing spiritual support and building connections with others. I got to meet her earlier this year at the 12th Annual Interface Conference at the University of Illinois. And I just was really inspired by her and really resonated with the message that she gave She was the keynote speaker there and a workshop presenter, and I think this was the fourth or fifth time that she served in that capacity for the conference, so it was just really neat to have that intersection. So this past fall, uh, Jennifer actually published her first book. It's called To My Beloveds, Letters on Faith, Race, Loss, and Radical Hope, and we'll definitely chat more about that. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Kelly. Yeah. I'm just really excited about our conversation. So I always really like to start by getting a sense of the story of each of our guests. You know, our podcast is called Everything is Spiritual. And so I think it's important to get grounded in the religion or faith system that the guest experienced growing up. So can you share a little bit about that and also how that learning that you were kind of raised with how that's evolved for you over the years. Yeah, absolutely. So my faith story begins, I like to say, in the red dirt fields of southern Georgia. And it was there in the 1930s and 40s where my grandmother and her family resided just outside of Bainbridge, Georgia. And family legend has it that my great-grandfather was a preacher, was a preacher man who built a small brick church on the family's land and would get so filled with the spirit that he would walk the pews, like the very thin railings on the pews. And so I start my story there because I find myself constantly in these days going back to my family story and family lineage as a way to ground myself in a larger spiritual narrative that is not just about my life experience, but extends further back into the generations before. And so Specifically, my family um, as a family that emerged out of the horrors of the first chattel slavery and then the horrors of Jim and Jane Crow in the South are, like many African-Americans, grounded in the Black church tradition, um, whether that be um, the Black church tradition in small, you know, shotgun churches <laughs> in the middle of, of fields, um, cane fields in southern Georgia, Or um, in the case of my father, who was raised in a Black Catholic parish in Chicago, right? A very expansive definition of how Black Christianity and spirituality has expressed itself and, you know, taken shape in the United States over the past 
three to 400 years. Mm -hmm. Specifically, I was raised, my dad was Catholic, as I mentioned, my mom was raised Baptist. And when they moved to a small town, not too far from you at Quincy, Illinois, Mm -hmm. in West Central Illinois, they didn't really know what to do with me. They couldn't agree (laughs) where to send me. (laughs) But they were really close friends with the local pastor at the local AME church, African Methodist Episcopal Church, which also had an amazing youth ministry at the time. Mm -hmm. And so I like to say my family followed me into the AME church. And Mm. it was at Bethel AME Church there in Quincy, Illinois, that I was really shaped by the wisdom and experiences of the elder Black women in my community, um, what we call my tradition, the church mothers, who really took me under their wing in the back of the church kitchen, quietly pulled me aside and affirmed and spoke into me a vision of my life that you know, as a child, I didn't see. So I mentioned this in my Mm -hmm. book that I think I was, you know, four or five, maybe six years old when Sister Catherine Weldon pulled me aside and told me that I was going to preach someday. And, you know, as a child, you don't really, um, I I couldn't have cared less. I was probably going to like go run. I don't even know what that means. Right. To go like sneak a a snack from the church kitchen or, you know, (laughs) run out into the yard with my friends. But I think that's one of the beautiful things about community is that people, especially intergenerational community, is that people begin to recognize things within yourself that you can't even recognize. Mm -hmm. Um, And so when I think about the spiritual background of my childhood, I think about the lineage of you know, praying Black women that I come from. I think about the lineage of people of deep faith that I come from. I think about um, the priests of different sorts that I come from, right? The preachers in my family. But mostly I think about those church mothers who spoke life into me as a young person who saw things within me and affirmed my call to ministry before I even knew I had a call to ministry in a powerful way. Wow. So, from that time, how have have you grown and developed within your own faith? Oh, I think one of the other things that I'll give credit to my dad here, and he would probably be surprised that I'm giving him credit. <laughs> um, but one of the things that my dad, who's an educator, taught me really early was to ask, always ask the question, why? And mm-hmm. I think alongside my spiritual development, I always had a natural curiosity for the ways in which spirit was operative, God was operative, but also the way that institutions were operative in helping mm-hmm. filter faith. And so was never afraid or shy of asking the hard questions. <laughs> so mm-hmm. why is it that we can ordain women, but I don't see very many in the pulpit? Why is it that, mm-hmm. you know, we preach a faith of liberation, but when it comes to, especially in 34, sort of in the post 9-11 moment, way too often heard vitriol coming from black pulpits um, against folks who have different faith traditions mm-hmm. um, that didn't seem to be in sync with my understanding of the liberative context mm-hmm. of the faith I was taught um, alongside, you know, even more complicated issues around gender and sexuality, et cetera. So mm-hmm. I think one of the great gifts that I've been given is that I am a natural question asker. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I, and so as my faith has evolved and my spiritual practice has evolved over the years, I think the asking of questions and believing that I have a God and believe in a God who's big enough to hold my questions and that mm-hmm. faith is not the absence of doubt, <laughs> but mm-hmm. um, but is trust in the absence of certainty. Mm-hmm. And I think that those have all been really shaping for me. Another thing I'll say is that um, I am squarely a millennial and... <laughs> You know, after living in Quincy for the first part of my childhood, I moved to Chicago at 14 and went to um, Whitney M. Young Magnet High School, which is right there, just uh, west of downtown. And at the time I was there, it was one of the most diverse high schools in the United States. I think African-Americans mm-hmm. or Black folks made up the majority at maybe 30%, <laughs> and wow. but it was pretty equally distributed. And one of the most powerful experiences of my life was beginning to meet people at that point, you know, diversity growing up in West Central Illinois was what Christian denomination you were a part of. Are you Methodist mm-hmm. or Catholic, right? Mm-hmm. But having friends who are Muslim and Jewish and Baha'i and non-believers mm-hmm. and seekers and Buddhist, right, really opened the eyes of my imagination that divine light and wisdom can be found in a variety of different packages. <laughs> and mm-hmm. And so I think as I have 
started to understand my own Christian practice more has been in conversation with other spiritual and faith traditions and has and in that engagement has really opened the eyes of my heart to be able to expand my definition of spirituality and where spiritual wisdom comes from. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, I live that daily because <laughs> my husband is Jewish and practicing. And so I might be the first AME pastor, I'm going to say in the U.S., but I'm going to definitely know in Nashville, Tennessee, who's a <laughs> member of a conservative synagogue. <laughs> um, and so, you know, Moving in and being in relationship with my my husband, Ira, and his family and attending services on Saturday. And, you know, our our baby Max actually goes to our synagogue's daycare, (laughs) right? So um, all of that, I think, has helped inform my vision of God as being an ever-expanding we, (laughs) right? And that while my pathway to God has been very specifically through the lens of Christianity and Black Christianity in particular in the United States, that there is wisdom and guidance and knowledge to be gleaned from so many different traditions. And so that's where I sit, even as ordained clergy, right? So I don't, I hope I'm not out of line with any doctrinal teachings in my church in saying that. I don't think I am, but you know, you never know. Yeah. And it's, I mean, I think that's something that people in general try to find peace with is, you know, what is their understanding of the theological and doctrinal teachings of their church? And then, you know, is that, is that true? Is that just their understanding? Is that just what has been taught in their church or in their region? Are there other people who are being expansive in their understanding of that church or that or that doctrine or that theology? And then how does their lived experience play out in alignment with that theology or doctrine? So yeah, I think that's that's a question that a lot of people grapple with. So absolutely. Mm-hmm. And again, if I just, I I question if your God's not big enough to hold your doubts and your questions, then I don't know if it's a God that's really worth it, right? (laughs) Uh um, I certainly, my vision of the divine is not some dogmatic judge from on high, but one who wants to be in dialogue with with their beloved creation, you know? So. Uh Absolutely. Absolutely. And I just heard the other day about, um, I don't remember who said this, but it stuck with me and I find myself saying a lot is that Jesus was so radically inclusive. And so if we truly are followers of Jesus, then of course we're um, ecumenical, inter-spiritual, inter-identities, um, and, and we should be seeking to have conversation and compassion and understanding with people who who come at their spirituality in a different way and connect with God in a different way. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So tell me more then about Faith Matters, because I'm sure that um, plays into some of these belief systems that you've developed. Um, tell me tell me more about it and how it got started. Yeah. So Faith Matters Network um, began in 2014. I was just graduated from Vanderbilt Divinity School in Nashville and had spent most of my divinity school career working on a part-time basis. Um, at a local food justice nonprofit in Nashville, really working alongside those who are organizing to get accessible, healthy food to communities in need and expand access to public benefits that help would help feed folks who are literally just hungry in our community. It's also in the seminary around the, se- the time that Occupy Wall Street <laughs> was beginning to mm-hmm. really take off um, the seminal moments of the Black Lives Matter uprisings really about to take shape. And so there was something in the air, I think, among myself and my colleagues as we were thinking about what it looked like to have an engaged faith that was responding to social, um, the social needs of the moment. I also saw that those same colleagues and friends of mine who were on the front lines were exhausted and burnt out, mm-hmm. <laughs> attempting to both live out. Um, Many of them were also working part-time and in school and also on the streets and also, you know, partners and mothers and all of that. And so I think as I began Faith Matters Network in 2014, which started as a fellowship project for me at the Nathan Cummings Foundation in New York City, 
those stories were at the core of my understanding of what what I was inquiring about. What what does it mean for us to be engaged in movements that improve and better our world, but at the same time don't chew us up and spit us out? And mm-hmm. so over the past eight years, FNM has taken on many shapes and forms and projects <laughs> as startups do. But I think what has remained consistent throughout the story of our organization has been that we wanted to be a soft landing place for faith leaders, organizers, and activists who were asking big questions about the world around them and wanting to engage more fully in reimagining the possibilities of what it would look like to build a more equitable and just society. And so our work really centers on three core commitments and values. Uh, Accompaniment. So we run a number of programs, including our movement chaplaincy program that's all about teaching people what it means to walk alongside those who are on the front lines of social change. Spiritual sustainability, knowing that those folks who are in helping professions, but particular organizers, activists, clergy, um, tend to pour out a lot, but don't get poured into (laughs) very often. And that rates of burnout, exhaustion, compassion, fatigue, addiction are higher in those populations. So we run a number of programs and fellowships that are really centered on helping fortify the spiritual well-being of those folks and thinking about personal and social transformation as being intimately linked. If we say we care about transforming the conditions of the world for the better for those who are around us, then we also have to take good care of ourselves as a model of that. And then the third um, value that we hold dearly at FNM is that of connection. So one of the things that was true in 2014 when we started, and I think is true today, is that far too often people who are doing this type of socially engaged spiritual work find themselves feeling really isolated and lonely. Mm-hmm. They might be taking positions that are counter to some of their communities. They might be, you know, holding a lot of different identities and not have space for themselves. And I think particularly as we begin to emerge into whatever this next phase of the pandemic is, just the reality of isolation um, given quarantine and lockdown and the mass exodus that we see people leaving, in particular like clergy jobs, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that is in part due to a sense of deep isolation from community. And so connection has been at the core of the work that we've done. And so like with the other two values, we run a number of different programs and initiatives designed to help people connect to other like-minded folks who may not be the most conventional (laughs) potential conversation partners, um, but who at their core are centering the same values around community and belonging and creating a different set of conditions um, for us to begin engaging one another in the world. So Mm -hmm. those are some of the, the core values that ground us. I'm so excited as we have begun this period of I think we're at a, another refounding moment is how I've described it. Mm. Organizations over the course of their life take on these different shapes and forms. And we're at a moment where we're really getting clear about like, what is our work to do and how, and for the work that is not ours to do, how do we come alongside and accompany other organizations, initiatives, and people in the ecosystem um, who are are building and similar veins. And it's been really beautiful to see ourselves again as part of an ecosystem. We don't need to be the only folks out here talking about it. Actually, it's detrimental if we are. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. um, we've gotten some real increased clarity about what it, our specific work is to do um, around those three core values. And we find it to be a really exciting and generative time to imagine differently It's interesting, right? The more specific we get sometimes in our call and our vocation, the more it actually opens up space for us to be generous with others because we don't feel the need to be um, competitive or like, Mm -hmm. or that um, default into that really harmful theology of scarcity. There's Mm -hmm. only X amount of resources out there, so we have to scramble for it. What I've felt within, I think our team has felt recently is this sort of shift towards abundance. Like there is enough, there's enough genius, there are enough resources for all of us. So as we continue to build at Faith Matters Network, how can we make sure that we're um, approaching this work with an open posture of abundance in all of our interactions? Hmm. Yeah. And also there's a, a certain level of ego that you have to kind of let go of, I imagine, because 
you don't have to solve all the problems and there are other people who can pick up the slack. And so I really like what you said about the more you get clearer, the more room it opens up to invite others in and let them share their talents and their perspectives and their uh, voices to the conversation and not have to have this burden of having to do everything for everyone. What's been some of the fruits that you would say have come out of this work since you've started? Oh, man, so much. Um, as much as we've given out, I feel like we've received <laughs> um, through our experiences. I'm thinking in particular about one of our emerging bodies of work, which has evolved um, over the past couple of years, is this idea of democracy as a spiritual practice, which has been mm -hmm. this really interesting landing place that started way back in 2016 um, as we co-founded a, a national project with two other organizations called the People's Supper, which um, saw it in the wake of the 2016 election, even prior to the election being called. <laughs> um, we, myself and my colleagues, um, Lennon Flowers and Emily May, saw this real vitriol in the way that we were engaging with one another. We didn't know how bad it was going to get. <laughs> right, right. Um, <laughs> but wanted to imagine what it might look like to create spaces of belonging for people to connect. Um, and Lennon, my, my dear friend, runs an organization called The Dinner Party that does mm -hmm. work with 20 and 30-somethings who've experienced um, traumatic loss, usually the loss of a loved one. And so you know, what would it look like to engage this dinner party-esque model of, you know, breaking bread with folks in a more civic context? And so People's Supper started as a project called 100 Days, 100 Dinners. Our intention was only to do 100 dinners during the first mm. 100 days of um, the Trump administration. Again, not knowing what administration it would be at the time we started right. um, having conversations about the project. And we ended up doing, I think, 111 that first 100 days, and over the past, you know, five or six years, have done over 2,000 suppers nationwide. Um, mm. And so, it has been a really powerful learning experiment because along the way, we've learned so much, right? That it wasn't enough, honestly, <laughs> to just do one-time dinners, and so the model evolved to do work, more sustained work in communities over time, and about. Two or three years ago, we at FNM exited sort of the daily operations of the People's Supper, but used that methodology alongside some of our partner founding partners to start a project in North Carolina called Disciples of Welcome, where we journeyed for 24 months with 50 United Methodist clergy, primarily who mm -hmm. were serving um, rural congregations in North Carolina, which was a swing state <laughs> in 2020 bitterly politically divided at a time when the United Methodist Church has been discerning whether or not they were are going to stay a United mm -hmm. Methodist Church um, because of issues and disagreements around issues related to gender and sexuality in the church. And so what was so interesting about that that walk is that we got to be with those clergy through a lot of ups and downs. We didn't anticipate a pandemic happening when we started that project. Um one of the great gifts of that experience was just being able to really recognize how important it is to pour into the leadership of others and provide the soft landing space for people just to be authentic and how rare that is for faith leaders just to have a space to be authentically them, um, unlocking the power of storytelling and empowering folks to speak their truth, um, which and you know, sacred space, uh, sacred private space, <laughs> right, mm -hmm. was really powerful. And through that project, we were able to distribute, I think it was something like $50,000 in many grants for those clergy to actually try out the work of the themes around radical hospitality and bridging divides, try out in a real way what that could look mm -hmm. like in their communities. And because of the pandemic, we loosened some of the restrictions. And so people were able to start things like mutual aid projects to just get folks resources who needed it in their community. Some folks did adopt a virtual people separate model as a way to foster mm -hmm. connection in their community during lockdown. And so that, that program seems to be the gift that keeps on giving <laughs> in terms hmm. of what we have um, learned from the community that we've built there. And and I just want to big up on the podcast, my my dear colleagues, Reverend Margaret Ernst and Reverend 
Gloria Winston Harris, who were at the core and were the geniuses behind that project and held that project so beautifully. And they even, Mark and Gloria, if you're listening, (laughs) um, they modeled so beautifully for me as an intergenerational Margaret is in her early 30s. Gloria just turned 60, multiracial. Margaret is a young um, white woman, and Gloria is is African-American woman. Like, the possibilities of what happens when we can, when we build authentic, deep relationships with one another and can build on the creativity and wisdom of folks across um, generations and life experiences. And so we've been doing um, some intentional learning this year around that project, and so I've been so blessed (laughs) by the outcomes and what we've been surfacing and what it said to us about um, our future work and where we have strengths and where there are some ways in which, you know, some parts of the program that if we could do it over again, how we would do it differently. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I want to shift a little bit from Faith Matters to the book that you wrote. Um, I haven't had the opportunity to read it yet, but um, it's on my list of books to read. Um, but I'd love to have you take a moment to share a little bit about what it, what it's about and, um, also what, what it means to have radical hope. Sure. So the book is called To My Beloved's Letters on Faith, Race, Loss, and Radical Hope. And it is a, it's a, it's a baby book. It's a short book and collection of letters, um, really ad- addressing and thinking through, those themes that I named, so faith, race, loss, and radical hope. And I wrote most of it actually when I was pregnant with my son, Max, um, who Mm. was born in the fall of 2020. (laughs) Um, And when people ask me what the book is about, I say it is a book that is through the lens of one particular person's story, helping us wrestle with big questions about how we tend to death, how we tend to loss, how we imagine differently, and how we anticipate the world that we want to see. And so each of the letters is addressed to a different beloved in my life, um, some people that I've known and some people that I haven't known. Um, there's a letter to a motherless child, which is a letter that actually began as a, a journaling exercise prompt that I started writing when my mom was home on hospice. And she was, she passed away in 2016 and became a letter that was addressed to um, all children who have lost parents at a relatively mm-hmm. young age. Um, there's a letter in the book that is to Max, my my son. Um, <laughs> it was addressed to him when he was still in the womb. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I was writing about sort of my hopes and dreams and aspirations for his future as a, a mixed race black child in the mm-hmm. United States. As I was writing it under the the backdrop of the George Floyd. Um, Kelly mm-hmm. and some of the uprisings around that. There's a letter that I uh, I signed from an auntie in training addressed to members of Generation Z who were coming up behind <laughs> me who um, about the things I wish I would have known when I was 21, um, including like the ability to say no to people, <laughs> right? Um, that I, I talk I addresses a letter to my little cousins, and so there's a broad constituency that I'm, I'm talking to throughout the book. But the question of radical hope is one that I think ties all of them together. And when I define radical hope really based on my experience with those church mothers that I talked about earlier as the true and deep belief that we are able to can change the material conditions of the world and the here and now. Um, it's not a hope that is grounded in sort of a frivolous out there um, desire or claim, but it's a hope that, you know, the the etymology of the word radical is rooted. (laughs) And so that is really rooted in lived experience. And um, I'm very fond of saying that I believe in the miracle of the loaves and fishes because I saw what church mothers could do with two boxes of spaghetti and some dinner rolls, right? Like that there was something about the way these Black women that I um, grew up with who were in their 60s, 70s, and 80s who had seen some of the worst that our country had to offer um, in terms of structural violence and who would experience interpersonal violence in their own life and yet didn't give up and yet mm-hmm. believed that a different world was possible and taught us that. Mm-hmm. And so that's the the radical hope that I think many of us are so desperate for in this moment <laughs> where mm-hmm. there is 
so much loss, so much pain, so much trauma. And it can be very easy to default into cynicism Mm -hmm. that if, you know, we say in my tradition, if the faith that was good enough for my grandmother and my great grandmother is good enough for me. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's not just a passive thing for me. I actually think about, and I've done a little bit of genealogical research about around my maternal line and, you know, my grandmother was born into the Great Depression. My great grandmother, <laughs> um, and against the backdrop of the Spanish flu and a different pandemic, several generations back, my folks were enslaved, right? So just see um, the ways in which faith sustained people in my own family line and in my community, not just to survive, but to imagine what thriving can look like. Mm -hmm. That is what I mean when I talk about radical hope. And I think something that we're so desperate for in this season is the, um, the possibility of hope, the possibility to imagine a different world, um, which I feel much more urgent about now that I'm a, I'm a mom. (laughs) I really Mm -hmm. want to be able to pass um, something down to max um, a world down to max to that, is better than the world that I grew up in. Um, and I think that's a common, it's a common hope that's shared uh, across um, geographies and backgrounds. And I don't know that we all necessarily have the same vision <laughs> of what that world can look like. And so the question then becomes, how do we draw um, an ever wider circle and an ever expanding notion of we in terms of who we're including in our vision of that mm-hmm. collective future and liberation and imagination. Um, and I'll tell you, Kelly, that has been a faith journey for me <laughs> over the past five years, mm-hmm. because I think I've been, it sounds really beautiful to say that I want a world in which everyone belongs. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe everyone is made in the image of God. But when the rubber hits the road and I am confronted with people who would deny my humanity because of the color of my skin or because of how I worship or who I love, right? It becomes a much more disciplined practice. Mm-hmm. There's an activist and uh, abolitionist, Miriam Kaba, who talks about hope as a discipline. And I mm-hmm. think that notion of hope as a discipline is one that has felt so resonant for me, particularly through the pandemic, um, that it's not enough just to hope. We got to put some action behind it. Absolutely. And I also appreciate that you have to make it personal. And it's really nice when we talk about these concepts. And until they are personal, and they are intersecting with our personal stories, and you are tested that value system, that belief system, that vision is tested about how does it, okay, so how does that actually, what does that mean in my own life? What does that mean when I'm asked to love the people that I don't um, resonate with? What does that mean when I'm asked to invite others into the circle that I don't gel with? That's the hard part. It's super hard, especially given that so, um, it's so easy to spend time only with people who think and believe like us these days. Mm-hmm. Um, there aren't a lot of places in our lives any longer that are truly um, diverse. And I don't just mean that in terms of like racial diversity, because in some places, you know, there's mm-hmm. never been integration, right? right in right. that sense. But I just mean in terms of like diversity of thought. And that is one of the reasons mm-hmm. why I'm grateful to still be grounded in a in a faith community, in a local church that is by nature intergenerational and walks with people at all stages of their life. Because although um, my congregation is pretty monoracial in terms of most folks are, are African-American, um, there's a whole lot of different opinions there, Kelly. <laughs> there's yeah, a whole lot of people. I would imagine. <laughs> you know, a whole lot of variety of ideologies and theologies and on politics and um mm-hmm. And this struggle to stay in community with those folks, which is not really a struggle. It's really a gift. Um, it's, indeed, it's indeed a gift to, you know, have elders who just be like, girl, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> right? Or yeah. what you mean? Nah. Or, you know, to lovingly spar, not just over, you know, matters of church polity, but also over like what we see in the headlines. It's a gift. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. I, and I feel like we're being... Um, 
our society has modeled that less and less, the ability to um, have space where we can, you know, recognize difference. And so, so yeah, I mean, these, not that hope, radical hope is a platitude, but it goes along with that kind of toxic positivity or it goes into the action. Like, where are we making commitments to be able to hold uh, hold space for differences and how are we creating them and how are we valuing them? And um, I know I was in a conversation this morning with some folks about a anti-racial program that we're doing in our church. And, you know, we were talking about doing a Stations of the Cross that was around the um, sin of racism and somebody brought up this quote by Brian Massengill that said, uh, you know, let's not have these prayer services that hold these things at arm's length and just make us feel better um, and go through the motions, but that, let's actually make it visceral for us. Let's actually feel the feelings. Let's feel the emotions. Let's let's hear the stories. Let's build the relationships. And I think that's beautiful that that's what you're attempting to do. It's a struggle. <laughs> it's, it's not perfect, and I'm certainly I'm not perfect. And it's such a worthwhile um, endeavor because I learned so much about myself from being in relationship mm-hmm. with folks too, who have a different worldview than me. Hmm. So when you're supporting people who are in isolation. And exhaustion. You talked a lot about working with the Methodist ministers as one way to do that. But when you're supporting these these folks who are engaged in the struggle, in the conversation, in the um, the messy work of making the world a better place, what does communal care look like for them? What does support look like for them? What does accompaniment look like? What does life giving self care look like? Yeah, I'll tell you what it doesn't look like. It doesn't necessarily look like um, sort of a, I feel like there's been this emergence of sort of a self-care industrial complex that is much, very much grounded in self-care is getting a massage, right? Like, or something you have to mm-hmm. pay for. Or taking a bath. Um, or, <laughs> yeah, which like, don't get me wrong. Massages, baths, part of my self-care regimen. I'm not saying that, but what I'm saying is, <laughs> There's a way in which we've commodified self-care to be um, Mm -hmm. something that we can purchase and do, and then we're supposed to be healed. And I think part of our learnings is one of the things we do really well at Faith Matters Network is like creating opportunities for folks just to pause and be, Um, and not just be something, not do, but be, (laughs) right? and so that's looked like, you know, hosting retreats um, where we ground a lot of our work in ritual and reflection and meditation and prayer. It's looked like um, inviting and distrib- inviting folks to receive care packages. So we did activist care packages during the um, some of the more tense moments in our political life over the past couple of years that included everything from like bath bombs to like coloring books to po- poetry, right? Um, mm-hmm. um, and so none of it, I, I mean, in, in more of the and heavier investment of resources, we've invested in fellowships where we've provided folks with stipends just to do them <laughs> rather than having to produce mm-hmm. a project, right? And so I think part of the work that has felt so important in regards to this is being able to create a container for folks to rest into themselves and just be. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. And I talk about this a little bit in the book, but I actually think that's part of the question of the 21st century is um, in the words of my grandmother, like how do we be together? feels really important to me. Um, Not how we are together, but how we be in the the African-American vernacular English, right? But also like, what is our state of being how are we, how is my being in relationship to your being? How can we um, hold the multitudes that are our identities and still not just coexist, but co-thrive together? And so that has felt like a real gift of community. Um, in terms of the training we do for folks in spaces like movement chaplaincy, a lot of that is helping folks identify their resources and ritual from their own lineages and traditions that help inform their own personal 
philosophy or in some cases theology of care, <laughs> right? And mm-hmm. inviting them to lean into the resources that have been most meaningful for them and their communities as the authentic place to start from an accompaniment while also giving some tips of the trade around things like de-escalation <laughs> and nonviolence and, you know, some history lessons there and some, you know, tools to help them cultivate their own wellness practice. Because even as you are seeking to accompany those um, in need of care, we deserve to be cared for as well. Hmm. So it's interesting. How have people responded to those things? Because I know one of the challenges of offering people self, like authentic self-care opportunities and helping them lean into that, there's there's still a lot of resistance in my experience or even um, unwillingness to engage um, and saying, you know, I'm, I'm too busy uh, to even take care of myself. You know, I think I think this is true, and I invite people on my team who listen later to correct <laughs> me on this, but <laughs> all of our opportunities have been opt-in opportunities. So it's been very rare that we just make um, broad public offerings um, that folks, like, just invite, like, you, you know what I mean, that we go and do something for someone else that we weren't invited to do or that we have programs that people don't opt into. Does that make sense? And so yeah. the people who find us are often seeking <laughs> in these spaces oh. for um for care, for training, for community, for connection. And so it makes it a little bit easier. And when folks kind of self-identify who, um, you know, the question of who our people are, people kind of self raise their hand <laughs> and say, mm-hmm. I'm your people. And we say, come on in, you know, mm-hmm. dinner's ready. We're ready to be with you and, and journey with you. So that's been a gift, I think, is that we've cast out a light and people have responded to that light. Mm, well, that's good. People who are self-aware enough to know that they need something. They may not know what it is that they need, but they need something. And so they're seeking it. Yeah. So talk with me a little bit about you work with a lot of millennials. You work with a lot of younger folks, Gen Z. And I know there's just this overarching feeling of dissonance with institutional religion right now and kind of the faiths that many people have been, their understanding of their faith that they were raised in. And they they seem to be searching in a lot of ways for more authenticity, for more meaning, for more justice outside of their religion. Now, I, I don't know that I um, necess- I think there's a lot of good things within religion that maybe people don't know what to find there um, or people have been kind of taught a different thing than or, or a different perspective than maybe what what's actually there. Um, but how can we do a better job in your perspective of integrating what we do inside the church walls and what we need to do in our communities? I think it begins by asking, in the words of Parker Palmer, open and honest questions that we don't know the answers to. There is a sense, I can at least say, um, let me talk about my church, right? I'm not going to get on anybody else's pew <laughs> but, <laughs> and my denomination. You know, I think there is a sense that um, we can program our way out of sort of the crisis mm-hmm. of the loss of membership. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's a problem that we still like by default refer to young people as millennials because we're knocking on 40s door, y'all. <laughs> like, there's a sort of lack of understanding of of the very populations that we're attempting to engage. And I think what people are hungry for, both you know people in their 20s and their 30s and, and their teens are just spaces to ask questions, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think for folks who are attempting to engage younger generations, is to be open and curious about their (laughs) um, resistance to some of the structures and institutions that may have grounded you, but that they don't find life-giving and ask the question why, not in an accusatory way, but in a way that invites further conversation because we're not going to program our way. You can have the flashiest, Mm -hmm. you can pour millions of dollars as I know some denominations have, right? Mm -hmm. Imagining what's next. But if what's next is not, 
co-built with those people that you were attempting to reach uh-huh. out to and engage um, and is not based in a true space of inquiry and invitation uh-huh. with those folks, um, then your work will be in vain. And so uh-huh. that's, a, that's my answer is like, we got to get curious. And that's just not, it's, that's not unidirectional, right? I think younger yeah. folks also I get curious <laughs> about um, older generations and why they are so um, tethered to institutions and what was it about those institutions that when they were younger folks was so life-giving for them. So I think mm-hmm. there's a, I think there's a space um, and need for some cross-generational inquiry. And I don't know that we are good anymore of, about asking questions um, and practicing active listening in a way that really is transformative for relationships. And so I think there's a third piece there, which is like kind of muscling up our skills around mm-hmm. listening and conversation. Mm-hmm. And even adding in the value of having those conversations. I mean, it kind of, it's a chicken and an egg thing because the conversations can't happen unless you value them. And then you don't have good conversations unless you have the skills. So (laughs) uh, yeah, there's a lot of work that needs to be done, I think in that area, but I like the idea of just slowing down and listening and then acting instead of acting and kind of hoping if we build it, they'll come. I'm hoping that uh, there is a lot more listening that happens in the in the coming years. Absolutely. So, when people that you're working with, um, whether they're they're young or old, um, I think there's a lot of people who are ha- growing in their awareness of the injustices that are happening in in our world not just the world across you know in other countries but in our own country in our own communities in our own um families in our own you know churches and governments and and everything else um i think they're they're opening their eyes they're self-educating they're learning they're 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 seeing that injustice and they're yearning for something different what advice or insight do you have about how people who are growing in their awareness, how can they discern what it is that they are being called to do and be? So I would say in the same way that in the last question you asked, I said, let's get curious and ask like deep questions of one another and that we don't know the answers to (laughs) and listen actively. I think that as folks are awakening to some of the pain and paying attention to the pain in their communities, spending time to to really discern what is speaking most to your heart. Like what, you know, there's that saying about like, we're called to do the work and meet, meet God in the places of brokenness, right? That like our unique call is all about figuring out where God, God is calling you to address the brokenness of the world. And so to do that requires some slowing down. And I think some inquiry into our own story about like, what are the themes <laughs> that have continued to show up in your life? What are the places and spaces where you found yourself drawn to? The second thing I'll, I'll say is that I think that people are under the misconception that there is one way to be active in movement spaces or one way to um, address, you know, some of the injustices in their community, whether that is around, you know, criminal justice um, or education or the environment or, you know, you name it. And I think discerning what role you're being called to now is as important as anything else and knowing that roles might change. When I was in 26, I was like proud to don my collar and be at a march and put my body between protesters and counter-protesters. Didn't happen often, but I would do it, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. But in 2020, when the uprisings were happening around the country and I was pregnant, six months pregnant, it didn't make a whole lot of sense for me. Um, the best way for me to protect Black life in that moment was to sit my butt at home. Mm-hmm. And so then it was sort of discerning like, okay, if I can't be in the streets, how can I um, either support those who are or figure out other ways to offer my gifts in this moment? And so I just hear that with your audience to say, like, you don't have to be everything. Not everybody is called to be the person with a microphone um, or a bullhorn at the front of the march. Some of us are called to be the healers that do the support work. Some of us are called to be, you know, the investors who set aside a little, you know, 
candy money, as they used to call it in the church, right? <laughs> to invest in resources and to invest in movements. Some of us are called just to listen in this season mm-hmm. and respond to those who are being most directly impacted and take our marching orders from them. Um, Deep to Ayer has a really beautiful description of the different roles in the social justice and social movement ecosystem. I can't remember. I, mean, I think there's like 10 or 20, right? Mm-hmm. They're like first responders and healers. And so um, I would just invite you all, um, for folks who are interested, to look up Deep to Ayer's work around roles in the um, social movement ecosystem and see which one might speak to you in this season of your life. Mm. And we'll definitely, um, I'll link to that in the show notes so that some um, people can reference that. And I love that, that, you know, sometimes we think that we have to be out in front and that that's the only valuable role, but actually um, all the supportive people um, are necessary so that the people who are on the front can do the work that they need to do. So, yeah. Absolutely. How can somebody from East Central Illinois learn more or get involved in the work of Faith Matters? Yeah. Oh, man. So go to our website, follow us on social media, um, at Faith Matters Network. We're pretty active on Instagram and Facebook. Um, so you can like us there, um, follow us on those platforms. That's sort of the first line of um, learning what new opportunities are up at Faith Matters Network. Um, you can follow my personal work at reverendjen.com. Um, any upcoming speaking engagements, I have be there. But follow Faith Matters Network. We have some really, really fun stuff coming up. We actually are starting to do more publicly facing sort of offerings. And so um, mm. in February and March for Women's History Month and Black History Month, we did a series on womanist wisdom. <laughs> and so invited some of our favorite Black um, women theologians, writers, and scholars to talk with us about the origins of Black feminist thought and womanism. Um, In May for Mental Health Awareness Month, we're going to kick off a series called Mental Health Mondays. And so we're Mm. inviting members of our community to lead practices. And so just stay tuned. There's lots of stuff coming up and around the horizon for people to engage with. That's awesome. Um, and we'll definitely link to all all the social media and the website and everything else so people can also um, connect with that. Um, and how can, if people are interested in reading your book, how can they access that? Yeah, so it's available online um, wherever you buy books. Um, I would encourage you to buy at your local bookseller or go to your local bookseller site. You can um, order directly from my publisher, Chalice Press. Um, and if all... A push comes to shove, you can buy it on Amazon too, but buy local first. <laughs> buy local <Yes>. first. <laughs> Absolutely. And we um, we actually have a link to a, a organization called Bookshop that actually, um, it's kind of like the Amazon for local booksellers and connects you to um, any local booksellers that are in your area. And then um, if, if there isn't any in your area, then it can just support a, a a general local bookstore. But yeah, I think that's a great platform to buy books off of. It's awesome. Yeah. And it supports soul care too. So that's nice as well. Well, I always um, end the podcast with a series of kind of rapid fire questions that just kind of get a little bit more into you as a person. Um, So are you ready for some of those? Yeah. I'm so excited about this. Fabulous. (laughs) Um, So what is something that people get wrong about you? Yeah, I think people hear the reverend and think I'm overly pious in some way. That is not me. (laughs) I'm quite a reverend, um, probably to a fault. And so don't let the reverend fool you, I say. Um, There's (laughs) there's a lot more to me than um, than my my faith identity and my leadership role within my church. (laughs) That's awesome. Um, Where do you see the divine as most alive for you in this season? This is a this is like not the answer I thought I was going to give you, even that. Um, but I will say it's my son still wakes up once a night to nurse, um, usually at like two, three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> so there's something in those quiet moments of exhaustion, um, and I feel like I can't keep going. That I see the divine presence both in in Max's face and in this really like beautiful image of my mom passed away, this like intergenerational connection back through the spiritual realm to my mama, even though I can't call her and ask her questions, like imagining her 
at the same age with me <laughs> um, waking up at two, three o'clock in the morning. Like there's something about that connection that feels really alive and um, holy to me. So mm. 3 a.m. when I'm exhausted and don't feel my holiest is when I find the divine most actively mm. in this moment. I love that. What's one thing in your life that might seem ordinary to other people, but is sacred to you? Oh, my group chat with my best friends from high school. <laughs> um, I don't always respond. I'm like the least, I'm the most delinquent and actively <laughs> responding on the group chat. But like getting texts from the people who have known since I was, it's so funny, my my friend Dion's daughter, Jasmine, Dion's actually alum of University of Illinois, um, just turned 14. And we had this epiphany that I'd met so many of you know these five women when I was when I was fourteen. Um, so being in like deep relationship with people who just know you and who you can just say girl and they respond oh girl right like that, that there's something you know really ordinary about our group text but to me it feels really holy and sacred and like a grounding place even when I'm not the most active on that chat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, let me just say, Dion, Taya, Jennifer, Jordan, thank you for continuing to include me in the group chat. Thank you for being my sisters, even when, you know, I'm trifling and don't always respond. <laughs> <laughs> and that's love right there, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Giving people grace to show up when they need to and when they can. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What are you deeply grateful for right now? My boo. I'm gonna, yeah, my boo, my husband, my love. Um, you know, it's so interesting. I feel like so many people journeyed through this pandemic and had some like awarenesses about their relationships, which is like more power to you, and are no longer with the person they started the pandemic with. Um, mm-hmm. And I have felt this real um, kinship with my husband um, and deepening in our relationship over the past, you know, two years. Part of that was emerging into parenthood together, but. Mm-hmm. I like spending time with him and mm-hmm. you'd be surprised to say that because we had a little kerfuffle this morning. <laughs> um, <laughs> even through the kerfuffles, there is no one I would rather have an argument with or um, mm-hmm. kerfuffle with. Um, mm-hmm. And so I'm just deeply grateful for the opportunity to keep showing up in my relationship and that he shows up with me. And that's really cool. Um, mm-hmm. Even at my worst, because that's mm-hmm. the thing about relationships, y'all. They're so often a mirror back to yourself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, amen to that. So amen gratitude, that. gratitude to my boo. I love you, sweetie. <laughs> oh, um, I just need to sit with that for a moment. That's so, <laughs> so lovely. Um. And then finally, because I'm just a bibliophile and I love to read and I love to get book recommendations, what's a book that you would um, totally recommend to the audience? I'm going to recommend two because they both came out in the last um, two months from two young Black women, public theologians. Um, Candace Bimbo wrote a new book called Red Lip Theology, oh, yeah. um, which mm-hmm. is really um powerful. And then there's a recent book that was published by Cole Arthur Riley called This Here Flesh. Um, Cole Arthur Riley, for folks who are on Instagram, is the curator of a project called Black Liturgies. Um, And so I'd recommend both those books. Oh, I got a third. Um, There's also one by uh, Dr. Christina Cleveland called God is a Black Woman um, that just came out. So those are all books that have dropped in the last three months um, that have been really powerful for me. Awesome. The Red Lip Theology and God as a Black Woman were both on my radar, but I haven't heard of This Year Flesh, so I'm going to definitely link to, so I'll link to all three of them, and again, link um, to Bookshop so that you can buy local. Fabulous. Have you read them all? I have read bits and pieces. I've not fully through all three of them, but I've read <laughs> excerpts and chapters, but all of what I've read so far has been amazing. So That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for spending time with us. And yeah, um, thank you so much for having me. What a gift this conversation has been. Yeah, it really has been. I, I truly appreciate it. And um, just the work that Faith Matters is doing and the network of people that you're connecting with. And it's truly making a difference in the world. And you're making a difference in the world. So thank you. That's so kind. Thank you so much for having me again. And uh, thanks to your listeners for listening in. Thank you for listening to Everything is Spiritual and taking time to nourish your soul. Tune in each week for a little community and a lot of conversation. 
or subscribe in your favorite podcast app so that you don't miss our next episode. For more resources around spiritual exploration, restoration, and transformation, be sure to sign up on our mailing list at experiencesoulcare.com. Visit our website for information on retreats, workshops, and services from our partners. Or better yet, come visit our welcoming space in Urbana to say hi and get a steaming cup of tea. Soul Care Urban Retreat Center is a warm, welcoming, and accessible place for you to refresh, renew, and restore your mind, body, heart, and soul. We set a great big table, and everyone is welcome. Until next week, be well.